This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 7th, the Friday, 2022. And we are, perhaps appropriately for a Friday, talking diversity and inclusion once again. We've done a number of shows on it. We did a show uh, earlier this year with the Chicago-based writer Ibu Patel on how to build a more diverse democracy in America. He has a new book out, We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy for a More Inclusive Democracy. Uh, we've talked about how AI, artificial intelligence, can solve the problems of diversity and inclusivity with uh, authors like Bina Amanath, who has a new book out, Trustworthy AI. Today, we're focusing on leadership and inclusivity. Um, second edition of a book that first came out in 2019. My author, Jennifer Brown, is a diversity and inclusion uh, expert. Uh, the book... Um, is out in a second edition three years later. Jennifer is joining us from upstate New York. Jennifer, welcome. Uh, why the need for a second edition, Jennifer? Uh, the book came out originally in 2019. Not much has changed over the last three years, has it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I just couldn't leave it alone. And um, I knew the book had found a, a great audience then. But I think it was an audience of, as we say, the choir, right? It was the audience of folks who get it and who were already like, oh, I want more, right? I want more frameworks and ideas and, and tips, which is what was the book was full of. But um, to be able to redo a book as an author and keep the sort of best-selling structure in the book, but then fill in the context around it differently, given the, the the complete flip of the last couple of years has been incredible. I mean, I am so glad I did it. It was a lot of work because I wanted to keep the DNA of the book the same because people loved it. And I thought it could land differently now, given everything we've been through, but also to update the context, the meat on the bone, so to speak, with, with new stories, examples, more hard hitting concepts more, I think, brave conversations and frameworks for people because I think they're ready in a different way than they were in 2019. So in your mind, as someone who is an expert on the workplace, on diversity and inclusion in the workplace, what are the most significant changes over the last three years? Of course, everybody knows about COVID and the tragedy of, of mass death, but how has it affected your world and how has it affected the workplace? Oh my goodness, massively. I mean, I think the biggest thing that's happened is employees have found and used their voices, um, starting with the murder of George Floyd and the way companies reacted either with action or silence or something ambiguous in the middle. It, it, was, it was a moment of calibration. And I think a lot of organizations found themselves lacking in terms of their skill and competency to respond in a in a competent way, in a, in an authentic way, and in a way that reassured uh, their workforce that you matter, you're important to our ability to you know innovate and um, you know sell to customers and to capitalize on our market. Um, you know that that moment I think was a moment of truth, and I at least for me I saw in it a a massive you know disconnect between 
the way the demographics of the workforce are changing both today and the emerging workforce and the way our customer bases are changing and yet how organizational leadership in particular is out of step with that. And, you know, I've been in this I, mean, I, 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 I <laughs> understand the significance of the George Floyd moment, although my sense is it's radically exaggerated. A lot of it is just media hype and froth. Mm. But that was uh, an event around criminal justice. It was the murder of a man by uh, the police. What's that got to do with how corporations run companies? Oh, what a great question. Well, it, it, it feeds into the larger truth of issues in communities not being taken seriously, right? So I see the link very clearly, which is the issues of those of us in the workplace, in the professional world, who haven't felt seen, heard, acknowledged, included in real concrete ways, because the workplace wasn't built by and for so many people to be inclusive of so many people, right? You take parents, you take, you know, women who've been fighting this battle for decades, um, leaving the workforce in droves in 2020 and 2021 because there was no support provided for the shifted world that we were all trying to work in. We have missed over and over accommodating and truly structuring the support adequately so that we can get and keep all kinds of talent. So the workplace hasn't been a healthy place for a lot of people. And therefore, we've been losing people in droves. We've been leaving a lot of potential on the table. But the link here, Andrew, it's a great question, is what do we not know that's hurting us? What, what are we not acknowledging that is having an impact on our ability to have our workforce be productive, to feel a sense of belonging so that they can be productive? And where have we been sweeping that under the rug or willfully not seeing it or seeing it but not taking any action or not knowing what action to take? And I think that that is a direct parallel to communities who have basically been trying to say, here's what's not working for us. Here's what's causing harm for us. Here's why we're not doing our best work or we're not thriving and what can an employer do about that i think an employer can do a lot about that that was an interesting uh, headline today in the wall street journal and right across the financial press about payroll slowing uh, the job growth um, is mm -hmm. slowing won't that change the environment one of the reasons why employees uh, over the last three years have held the upper hand and acquired a degree of power is because of the economy, because it's they're in a much stronger position than em, em, employers. Uh, once that changes, won't we go back to the old system? Mm. I think we won't. The biggest reason we won't is that, well, the stakes are higher. The bar has been raised in terms of expectations for like everything I was just talking about, but also the demographics of the workforce, both the, the younger generation in the workforce and the incoming Gen Z, the oldest of whom are you know 25 or 26 years old, those generations operate very differently around their choices, their values, the alignment that they expect and need, their opportunities to have many, many hustles and sort of come in and out of organizations depending on their entrepreneurial adventures, their access to technology, you know, all the ways that the choice that, that they have that I didn't have certainly in my generation, and I would even argue millennials didn't have, is, is going to continue to put pressure on institutions to up their game, right? To keep that generation, to get that best talent, to keep that talent. There, there's no loyalty that's going to come automatically with that generation. And it's going to be earned 
you know, many of much of the research I see and I also understand from our consulting work is going to be around alignment of values and those values, the top ones are inclusiveness. You know, so it's a huge difference in terms of this generation, how it moves, why they do certain things, what they care about, why they, you know, might feel connected to an institution or not. It's going to look very different. So companies are still in a war for talent, uh, but the basis on which they need to play that game and resonate is going to center around inclusiveness, conscious capitalism, um, role of the company much larger than just, oh, we sell widgets. But what is our sort of voice in the world and, and how are we taking a stand for things? And this is really uncomfortable for a lot of institutions. And I think they wish it would go away, but it's not going away. But isn't this, Jennifer, just really happy talk? The most dynamic, the most profitable, the highest growth companies are still run enormously aggressively. The Amazons, the Apples of the world. What companies in your mind are paragons of inclusive virtue? Ooh, nobody is beyond reproach, I will say. Uh, you know, and you'd be surprised uh, that, you know, sometimes, you know, you hear a leader like, you know, I, I have mixed feelings. You know, you have a hero. You're not going to tell me about Paul and Pullman again, are you? Every time yeah, no. we have a show on this, it's always Paul <laughs> Pullman at Unilever. Yeah. Oh, yes. And, you know, Jamie Dimon is is such, as a CEO, he's so fluent in, you know, DEI, his numbers. He knows exactly. He care, He's cared for years and put, mon put his money where his mouth is, right? Yeah, as but CEO. these CEOs often talk DEI. My wife used to work at PayPal and the CEO mm. there... Um, I've forgotten his name, Dan, something or other, um, yeah. used to talk endlessly about DEI. And the more he talked, the less inclusive they were. And I think that's true, yeah. particularly of, of, of a lot of the companies in, in, in uh, Silicon Valley. So talk mm -hmm. is one thing. Action is another, isn't it? So true. Yeah. I mean, look at what Patagonia just did, you know, like leadership well, well, Patagonia around. Patagonia is an exceptional case, but there aren't many Patagonias, are there? Yeah, I wish there were more. Um, I think with CSR and ESG really cresting in terms of importance and what accountability. Hold on, too many, too many. Uh, too many acronyms. Yeah, what's is, what do those mean? CSR and it sounds yeah, like a medical emergency. Yeah, I know, I know. Corporate social responsibility is CSR. ESG is environment, social, and governance. So ESG is something that's beginning to be measured in terms of you know, the, um, the health of an organization for on the, in the markets, basically. And ESG measures, how are you on the environment? How are you on social issues? How are you on governance? Are you a good investment? Right. And those, those benchmarks are well known by a lot of the global multinational companies that we work with and they're holding themselves to standards. They're competing. Could, could with you give me other. some examples of positive companies then with, with these different acronyms? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not an ESG expert um, because I focus on the S in ESG, I would say, which is the social piece and the social. Well, let's just leave the, let's just let's just focus then on inclusivity. Can you give me some examples of companies that are doing a good job on the inclusivity front? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are our clients, but we're not really at liberty to talk about them. But if you right. think about it. You know, it's it's I wouldn't ever say anyway that one gets a pass and is perfect ever like because unfortunately, unfortunately, companies are, you know, huge kind of combinations of different leaders, you know, and each leader runs their function. And sometimes we go in there, collect data and we see, well, that's that's going really well. You know, that leader 
has a wonderful um, track record. They're putting their money where their, their metrics look great. Their representation is strong. It looks like the world that they do business in. And then other parts of that same company could look completely different. So it's a really hard question to answer. And when you study organizations, you know, you know, it, yes, it all rolls up to kind of one impression, but that can be manipulated. But when you look as we do inside, like under the hood, and we begin to do diagnostics, you know, it really, there's different opportunities all around any given company, but there's also great leaders in every company too. So it's Could like- Could you really give me some examples of some great leaders then? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think- best, They don't have to be your clients, people who- perhaps aren't around anymore. People use Jack Welch as the, uh, as the model of someone who did things wrong. Are there, are there models of people who did things right? Isn't that interesting in how his reputation, yeah, his reputation has changed. Um, well, I mean, just on inclusivity, I want to point out perhaps a good example is uh, Tim Cook at Apple. You know, he, mm. and this is a DNI answer. I'm going to give you an answer around culture right now and, and engagement. You know, he is, was really kind of closeted as a, as a gay man. You know, and um, until maybe four or five years ago, I don't know exactly when it was, but he he basically got the message from his workforce that this is a very important thing to disclose, you know, just to talk about, to not, you know, if it's an open secret, it's not enough to have something be kind of a secret still. And generationally, he really struggled with that. And he's written a lot about this. And he said, I, I'm a private person. It doesn't matter. I'm a business person. I'm a seat, whatever, all that, all that, right? And yet listening to his employees to say the message you're sending by living a life hidden and denying in a way and your silence, you know, sort of going along with things is not, is not helping. And in a way it's not, it's not what this generation really wants to see uh, because there, there's a valuing around authenticity and the full leader. And so he decided to talk about it for the first time, you know, and so he realized it wasn't about him and his comfort. He realized it was about the significance of, being fully his himself. And I, I guess I bring that might seem like a niche example, but actually like Apple's such a powerful brand. He's such a powerful person. Like, so it gets to the personal piece of how leaders need to challenge themselves these days to be comfortable being uncomfortable and to lead from a place that is more transparent because um, that is what's going to gain the followership. That is a piece of creating a brand that this younger generation that I was talking about really wants to be a part of. So are you suggesting that all leaders should disclose their um, <sighs> unconventional sides of their lives, their sexualities, <laughs> their peculiar sexual proclivities? I mean, at what point well, does authenticity I mean, that there, there's, there's there, there is appropriate and safer work and there's not, right? So let's not go there. But I, I don't I don't view how we identify who we love, who we live with, who we're married to as a proclivity. You know, it's a it's it's a truth just like everybody would want to talk about their family, you know, openly or hide who their family is. We don't want anyone hiding. The problem with this, Andrew, is that when we do not bring our full selves to work, we are not fully embodied in our contribution. And the workplace has not been a safe place to do that because the workplace has been built by a narrow group of architects. And that just is what it is. I'm not criticizing it. It just hasn't been built in a representative way. And it hasn't been built to accommodate and really galvanize all of who all the people are that populate that company. It really hasn't. And in a way, it's, been, it's put a lot of roadblocks in the way for people to be productive because they don't feel a sense of psychological safety because of bias that kind of permeates every interaction because it does. It's just a fact. So the work 
really to get the most out of your workforce is to really take a deep look at ourselves to say, where are people not thriving here? And what can we do about it? And what role does bias play in their inability to contribute and ultimately their want to leave? Because when we lose a person, it costs three times their value of their salary to lose them because we lose all the acquisition costs for them, all the ramping up costs for them to be productive and contribute, only to have them walk out the door because the culture's horrible. You know, employee engagement is at an all-time low. It's always been low for years. We look at the Gallup numbers, you know, and I've been looking at those and seeing that DEI is an unlock for that. But we've got to get comfortable talking about what's getting in the way for people from an identity perspective and really acknowledge that this is not something we can deny or sort of argue with or say, well, it's not important or isn't this a fad or your question earlier, isn't this going to go away when the talent market gets more competitive? You know, yes and no. It depends what you see for the future. Do we want a multicultural workforce that represents the world or don't we? Do we think that's better for innovation of products and services because we have multiple viewpoints around a table, yes or no, you know, and that's a choice that every company can make. Some people, Jennifer, might be listening to this and thinking this is the quintessential America inward gazing naval obsession. Uh, you're right, of course, about Tim Cook, about revealing his mm -hmm. sexuality, making it a more inclusive, diverse workplace, blah, blah, blah. But some people might say, well, the real issue for, for Apple is addressing its relationship with China and the slave labor camps in China, which are foreign issues, more complicated, uh, perhaps not immediately relevant for its quote unquote diverse workforce. What, what, how would you respond to that kind of critique that, that, that this obsession with authentic leadership and diversity is only making American companies and capitalism more parochial? and ultimately morally dodgier, more dubious. Right, right. Well, I think the opportunity is to square, is to square the company's actions on the global stage with what is important in the values of that company, right? And if we are far apart and say an Apple, it's a great example of what we were just talking about, the comp every company is a mixed bag. So, you know, I think the drumbeat for more equitable practices around the world, the drumbeat for ESG, and you just brought up a wonderful example, child labor, the way we get products made around the world and the way that we either contribute to um, you know, inequities around the world or not with our supply chain is a wonderful example of what's being measured in ESG. So just to go back to that, I just wanted to put a pin in that. So ultimately though, the transparency of how a company does business, where it does business, who it does it with, who it's supporting, all of this is, is coming to the fore and it's being brought to the fore because of the accountability of the younger generations and how they are saying, well, we do this here, but we do this here. We are not walking the talk here, right? And so this is becoming more of center to the conversation. And I'm, I, for one, I'm glad because it's kind of bringing everything into focus. And then the question might be, well, which companies are going to differentiate themselves based on walking the talk with their values? And you either believe that's important from a talent re recruitment, retention, and an innovation perspective, or you're sort of willing to kind of, you know, hide away some of your practices because you're embarrassed or ashamed about them. You don't want them being scrutinized, but they're going to be scrutinized anyway. I mean, this is coming, this is here, you know, this, you know, we cannot, we cannot hide anything about our practices and our operations. The question really is, you know, how courageous of a stand do we want to take? Do we want to, you know, run a business that feels, you know, that it is aligned 
or you know, are, do we still have some cleanup to do? And I think every company has to make some hard decisions and those decisions have consequences. What do you think? Uh, you're obviously coming at this from an HR point of view, uh, diversity and inclusion. What do you think the, the core, the sales guys and the product guys in, 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 in these companies think of what you're doing? My sense is that there's some degree of irritation that they want to focus on profit and profitability rather than these other things. Are you finding a lot of resistance within companies? I mean, I think um, it's still there uh, for sure. And there's also, by the way, religious pushback. You know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the LGBTQ plus community. So we've still got a lot of tussling going on relating to companies who are like, we, we want to celebrate all of our workforce, right? And make this a, a, a safe place, a place of belonging. This is a priority for us. But the, the skirmishes around values are still happening. So that's happening. But I think um, there are some people who do still view this as side. It's a side note. It's a footnote. It's not a critical driver of the way they do sales, the way they do product design and development. But um, honestly, I think that's a, that's a sort of backward looking view um, because what's happening with a sales team you go on your sales meetings, you don't care about this at all. And you find yourself across the table from a multi-million dollar business opportunity. And on the other side of the table, somebody asks you, you know, we're looking around the room here. We don't see any, we don't see any diversity. We're looking at your firm and we're evaluating you for, you know, this relationship. And, you know, we're a little dismayed by what we see in your board or what we see in your practices. You know, what, what are you doing for this? So I don't know whether it's about agree, disagree. Like I personally find this irritating. I think it's more of a, more of a sort of choice around differentiation in the market and an acknowledgement that the pressure that we are getting from our ecosystem to make the money that we make and to build the products, by the way, that are going to hit the mark that are going to resonate with a diversifying customer base. You know, I don't even have to quote, you know, maybe I do the, the spending power of non-white you know, female buyers, non-white buyers, LGBT market is a trillion dollars of buying power. We make decisions about brands and purchasing partially based on how we feel treated, how we feel, you know, the products resonate, how we feel the marketing of the company is being handled, how we feel the ESG metrics are being, you know, accounted for. I mean, I'll just speak for the LGBTQ plus buyer. You know, we are very, we are very hip to the, that information. So we wield a lot of power in these decisions. And I, so I think if you're a business leader and you're saying, well, this doesn't matter, I would question how closely you're listening to the world and how change is happening. I would question how much you're paying attention to what's important to your incoming workforce and your future leaders. You know, I would just question your viability. Uh, so it's not about agree or disagree. I don't know. I, I think people get sidetracked around, well, I, it's not the way I've done it. It's not the way I'm comfortable. It's not the way that's worked for me. But I would tell you that actually like the, the most effective leaders are the ones that are choosing to evolve at any age. And it's, yes, we don't have the script for how we need to evolve, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to be asking ourselves those questions and challenging ourselves to be uncomfortable, to really, really reevaluate the way we've been leading, the way we've been putting teams together, the way we've understood our markets, everything is changing. And if you don't want to change in this, in the space of something that's completely changing, good luck. <laughs> the book is how to be an inclusive leader. The second edition, um, Jennifer, there's two messages. I'm not sure if they're incompatible here about being mm -hmm. an inclusive leader. You're saying on the one hand, 
this is the right thing to do. So you have a podcast, for example, called The Will to Change, a kind of almost Nietzschean title. Um, and on the other hand, you're suggesting that this offers an enormous commercial opportunity. In other words, uh, you can be good, virtuous, and profitable simultaneously. Is that the argument you're making, that you can have everything? You can make <laughs> can huge we? amounts of money and be morally good. It's almost too good to be true. In fact, as you know, and I know, it is too good to be true. <laughs> I wish, you know, we, 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 we default to the binary, this or that, right? Don't we? we? We default to the, I can't walk and chew gum at the same time, I think, as humans. You know, I can't hire diverse talent and, and a team and that looks like the world and be profitable. I, I think this is a really limiting belief. You know, it's um, it's to me, it comes from a scarcity mentality because perhaps we've we've never seen it to be true or possible. Therefore, we believe it can't be. I, I don't think I, I think we have much more capacity than that. You know, and I think we do hard things every single day. We as leaders figure out how to you know, function and thrive and make money and, and innovate. There's no reason that we can't kind of hack ourselves. There's no reason that we cannot, I think, achieve both of these things. So I, I kind of, I, I first of all want to challenge the scarcity versus abundance, right? To sort of say, I cannot, and I get this a lot from leaders, you know, Jennifer, I need to be able to hire as I've always hired. I don't want to be influenced. I don't want to have to incorporate, you know, the fact that it's all men on my team. We're a great team you know, okay. So I, I think these are, they might feel like dueling priorities, but I, I wouldn't set this up as a binary. I would say, well, the question is a different question, which is well, how does your team need to look in order to serve the customers and the clients that you need to serve both today and tomorrow? What are you missing out on in terms of diversity of thought and identity? And, you know, then how can you incorporate that as a goal or a lens through which to see your hiring, to see your promotion and advancement? Because if you're not careful, we will hire and recruit and retain people that look like us. And the problem with that is that it becomes an echo chamber. And it's the reason that you have the most diversity at the bottom of companies, meaning in the individual contributor world, that early stage talent. And then as you move up and get promoted, 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 all that diversity disappears. And you end up with management teams that look nothing like the workforce that they lead and nothing like the world that the company serves. And in my world, that is viewed as a challenge. And so we get called by companies who are like, uh-oh, we don't, we're behind. We, this is not satisfactory. Our clients are telling us it's not satisfactory. We're losing business because it's not satisfactory. We're having PR challenges because we're announcing products in the market in a way that's not, you know, culturally thought through, you know, so I think that they feel the pain. And um, the most important thing to me is, are you working on it? You know, it's not, oh, I'm going to fix this tomorrow because honestly, it took many, many years to build. It's not going to be fixable overnight. But what I look for is the commitment to change. And I, that's why I love the will to change, right? It's sort of, okay, we acknowledge the objective reality of the world we're in. But to me, the will to change speaks to that individual leader. What are you willing to do? And what are the leaders of an enterprise willing to do? And I, to me, that comes down to a personal commitment because the personal commitment rolls up to the org commitment. And it means that we're all kind of rowing in the same direction. And if I can just say one more thing, a, a CEO who's passionate about this is the critical element. There is nothing more important than that leader. And so I focus a lot of time thinking about, you know, how does a leader lead? 
on this? And then how does everybody sort of line up or not and choose to opt out or maybe leave if they're not on board with the direction that this is going? But the but um, it certainly works best if you've got a really strong voice at the top who believes in this and no, they're not going to do everything perfectly and their supply chain isn't going to be perfect to your point. All their business decisions aren't going to be perfect at all. Um, it's going to be a mixed bag, but at least, you know, I look for the silver linings that are happening and the work that's actually being done in the midst of that. You talk about uh, the will to change and bravery and blah, 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 but it seems very orthodox. I mean, any, any CEO wouldn't articulate this um, are in danger of being vilified uh, by somebody or other. You want to be really brave as a leader, wouldn't you challenge the very architecture of American capitalism? Perhaps like the CEO of Patagonia, who recently, I think, gave away all his money and, and, and changed the very nature of the company. Because while all these changes in, in inclusivity and diversity are going on in these big companies, America continues to be profoundly unequal. And it, it's the inegalitarian nature of American capitalism mm -hmm. that defines the economy and the society. So uh, are these changes you're talking about when it comes to sexual identity, for example, simply cosmetic? Tim uh, Cook may or may not be gay, but he's a multi-billionaire. So what? Mm. Well, so what? I mean, it really matters, though. Um, it more matters than being a multi-billionaire, more yeah. than the disappearance <laughs> of the American middle class, yeah, more yeah, than the yeah. wiping out of uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's many not good. professions. The yeah, the wealth gap is worse than it's ever been. Um, Which is much it, more concerning than whether or not Tim Cook acknowledges his sexuality, isn't it? Well, certainly. But the wealth gap, I think, is a product also of employment opportunities. And it has been exacerbated by bias that has kept those opportunities from uh, all people. Right. So our bias in, in what schools we recruit from, the skill sets that we are requiring in terms of our hiring, right, and our criteria, um, the bias, you know, uh, the statistics are startling that like, you know, Jose and Joe's resumes, same qualifications, Jose's resume ends up in the, you know, the dustbin. Um, the statistics are, are well studied of how at every single point, our bias prevents people from entering our organizations, from thriving in those organizations, from being promoted into leadership. Um, and so, and therefore it exacerbates that wealth gap. So I think there's a direct correlation with opportunity here. Like who are we keeping, Not maybe unbeknownst to us, but honestly bias is not just unconscious, it's conscious bias too. You know, where have we been hiring in our own image, perpetuating the same schools, background, families, family connections, you know, when people argue with me about meritocracy and they say, well, Jennifer, you know, I don't want to be forced to hire anybody that I don't want to hire. And because I believe in a meritocracy and I point out that it's actually the workplace has never been a meritocracy to be truthful. It's been people hiring people that look like them, that went to the same schools, that have the same background, that they think I can count on this. I can vouch for this because they, you know, look like me or share my background or I'm familiar with them. The problem is we live in our bubbles and we perpetuate those bubbles. No, I, I take your point and, and I don't think anyone would argue with them, but if you have a, 
a, a plutocratic class of millionaires and billionaires, what difference does it really make whether they're gay or straight, black, mm -hmm. white, brown? So what? Oh, that's so important. Um, well, so, but, but my point is, is that you, you seem to be in, in some ways an apologist for free market American capitalism, all the issues that you think need to be reformed within companies mm -hmm. and that the broader architecture of American capitalism, my sense is you're suggesting that's okay. We simply need to rearrange, if you like, the deck chairs so that there mm -hmm. are more seats for people of different races and ethnicities and sexualities. Is that your point? Well, I think my point is that you know, companies are the most respected institutions right now, according which to which isn't the saying much because all the which other isn't saying much. The bar is low. Yes, absolutely. And capitalism is flawed. It's inequitable. Um, but at the same time, to think about what the opportunity is to wield that capitalism, not just for sheer profits at any cost, but to figure out how to have you know, healthy systems that power capitalism, like it depends whether you believe that's possible or not. And, you know, have we ever even been there? It is, no. Right. I mean, yeah, would it be I mean fair to say? You're, you're, a, you're ultimately an optimist about the future of American capitalism. I mean, I think that if the companies choose to take on some of these persistent issues that they've never really taken on before and looked within and look at their systems and how they're inequitable and shift those to create more economic opportunity for who's been missing from those systems. I think that they could be incredibly positive actors in our system. And also think about all the ways that um, companies have influenced inequitable political realities. Companies pulling out of certain states and saying, we're not gonna do business here anymore because our employees can't get the health services that they need. I mean, so companies, and they're in this really uncomfortable spot. And I think it's a really fascinating thing to watch. Mm. Some companies are choosing to go right into the fire, you know, and say, we are for our employees, right? So, so if that means moving 20,000 people out of this office in Texas, because we cannot in good conscience move people here or keep a workforce here who's denied these protections, who's hunted for this, who is disenfranchised in this way, who can't literally have the families they wanna have or the protections. How can we possibly move talent around in this great country of ours between states when there's no parity around health protections or marriage equality? Like it makes a lot of problems for companies when the, our country is so politically torn apart and there's such inconsistency across the board and um, the companies are struggling. So I'm, I'm just watching, I don't know if I'm an optimist, I'm just, I'm just watching the choices that are being made. Andrew. Is like, there any place for the Republican party in American capitalism? Um, there was a, a piece uh, I noted on Fox, uh, of course, bashing the Biden regime, surprise, oh. surprise. Um, <laughs> suggesting that diversity, equity, inclusion dominate Biden admins policy priorities across agencies. This was in a, a recent mm -hmm. uh, Fox News channel piece. Um, does that mean, and obviously Fox News is not particularly friendly to your agenda, is there a place for the Republican Party in your version of American capitalism? It's rather ironic given that historically the Republican Party was the party of the free market and of mm. um, large corporations, it seems as if everything's being turned on its head. Hasn't it? I know. And then there's fiscal, fiscal conservatism and social conservatism. I would have to first say that. 
you know, but what I, and becomes I, of the the Trumpists and the people in the Republican Party who simply reject the very idea of diversity and inclusion? I mean, it's it's and I'll relate it to the workplace. It's a it's a funky question when it comes up, because in every workplace, there's political diversity of of opinion. Um, and yet the companies that many of the companies I work with have decided that being multicultural, being welcoming of all identities, including things like LGBTQ, including making it a priority to become more uh, representative of the world that we that we live in is a priority. And they're sort of marching forward because they're marching towards a future that looks, uh, it's a majority, for example, majority non-white country by a mm. certain date. So that's a fact. So the fact to me drives the strategy for companies because those are your customers, those are your consumers, those, that's your talent pool, right? So it's not even agree, disagree. Again, this is not a moral question. It's a fact. It's a commercial issue. So it's a commercial it's fact. Yeah. So, so if you don't believe that companies need to diversify based on your political beliefs, then I see um, it's very difficult for you, depending on the employer you work for. But there's a lot of employers to work for. You mm -hmm. can go, you can choose not to work for a company whose CEO is sort of moving forward and saying, "Here's where we're going. We're going towards this future, and we want to be make sure we can meet this future. And this is what we see in that future." You can opt out and and get another job. You can become an entrepreneur. You can. But, but it's going to be uncomfortable if you do work right. for a company with these stated values. But this is where you can make a choice. Um, well, those are the, the, the companies of the future. That's who you've written your book for. How to be an inclusive leader. Your role in creating cultures of belonging where everyone can thrive. Uh, everyone, perhaps, uh, except those people who don't believe in the idea of inclusivity. It's a complicated and interesting conversation. And I think, uh, Jennifer, you've done a great job representing it. Thank you so much. Uh, you're also the author of Beyond Diversity. You co-authored mm. this book uh, last year. So you've been very busy on the writing front. Your, your new book, sure. How to Be an Inclusive Leader, the second edition is just out. What else would you suggest people read? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of, I'll say, you know, uh, white male leaders are really struggling with uh, this whole conversation, as you've alluded to. Um, in a very unique way. And uh, so there's a whole conversation. I would encourage people to read books on, um, like there's a book I'm reading called Born on Third Base right now, which is helping me. I grew up very privileged and, and it makes me, every day I look at how I grew up and what that means for you know the things that we've talked about today and what I can be doing and how I fit into the equation of change. And um, you know I, I, I want to encourage everybody to at least read these books, at least just open up your mind to and heart to considering that they're, the, all of this conversation doesn't make any of us bad people. It's the, the system we were born into. It's the means we were born into. It's the, um, you know, our particular makeup and every one of us knows something about diversity or exclusion. And, you know, I, I'm not about shame and blame ever. And that's not ever my tone. So I would recommend, you know, just just opening up your mind and heart to these books, you know, read, reading them and saying, you know, I, I wonder where I fit, you know, and I wonder what. Is there one in particular, Jennifer, one of these books? That yeah, I mean, I like this read. book, Born on Third Base. I, I really Born think it's um, it's actually the story of it is like uh, he's an heir to a massive fortune. Um, I don't remember whether it's Heinz or, you know, one of Campbell's Soup fortune. 
And at 18, he decides he's he's come through this means through, uh, you know, something he didn't earn. And so he gives away his fortune and then he sets out on a journey of speaking to people about what it means for him to be, you know, an heir to a fortune, but what it means for him to be in the world. And I, it might seem kind of radical, but I, I love that kind of story, the bravery and the courage of it, but also just, it's so provocative to think about for those of us who have, have gone through life, perhaps not dealing directly with racism or sexism or homophobia and having other problems for sure, other challenges that matter, you know, just as much, but, but also kind of looking at ourselves and saying, well, I can be this and I can be that, you know, I'm a lot of things. How do I want to show up in this world? How do I want to lead? How do I want to be a parent? You know, what legacy do I want to leave? Um, you know, what do I want to do for my kids who are growing up in this world that is completely unfamiliar to me? Um, I think those are the right questions to ask. And I'm never going to be one of those people that creates, um, that says that anybody is not welcome in this conversation. Even those with whom I don't agree politically, um, I still think leadership is a conversation we can have together. And uh, leading people, leading a diversifying workforce doesn't mean you need to agree or disagree or whatever it is, but it's more good leadership. Good leadership can exist I think apart from some of these things as a practice, as a behavior, as a discipline, as a way that we show up professionally. So I hope that might be a way in for people to think about themselves in the context of our moment. 